there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and this week, Cam and I are pulling one out of the archives uh, because we need a little bit of a break. We've got a bunch of stuff coming up, guys. Um, the one we pulled out of the archives is also one of our favorite episodes. This is with Paul Zaza, who's film composer of some of your favorite movies. Uh, My Bloody Valentine, Prom Night, Prom Night 2, Prom Night 3, all the prom nights. He has great stories about working with Peter Simpson and Bob Clark. We genuinely love this interview and we love this man. He is wonderful. Um, so we wanted to share this with you. Just so you guys know, there is a Patreon coming. Yay! Well, yay for us. So if you would like to donate to us, keep your eye out for that. Um, it just helps us keep the show going. We've been doing it for two and a half years, totally free. And it's, of course, not free to run the show. It's a lot of work. We have to pay for the space and the bandwidth and all the fun stuff. So if you feel like contributing to us. Uh, stay tuned for that. We're going to be announcing that on our website, rcmpodcast.com, and our Twitter, at rcmpod. In the next few weeks, oh man, guys, oh man, we've got some great interviews coming. Uh, Don Carmody is coming up. Um, I have an interview coming up with the head of the English archives at the NFB, and he's pulled four of his favorite movies. These are treasures, and I cannot wait to share them with you. It's going to be amazing. So once again, follow us on Twitter. Stay updated. That's at RCMPod. Our website, rcmpodcast.com. That's everything. Thanks so much for being a listener. We love you guys. Thank you for being so supportive and so awesome. And here is our interview with Paul Zaza. I'm going to jump right into who our guest is today because I am so excited to have him. He is incredibly cool. If you have seen any Bob Clark films, if you have seen any Canadian films, you have heard his scores. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Paul Zaza with us today. Hey, Paul. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Yay. Uh, of course, I have Cam Maitland with me yes, as well today am, as my co-host. <laughs> I'm sitting quietly, just absorbing. Because <laughs> we are in the presence of, of uh, Canadian history greatness. Um, so, Paul, can you talk a little bit about uh, what your uh, what your background is? Oh, well, uh, conservatory trained pian piano, uh, piano player, uh, studied at the University of Toronto Faculty of Music, uh, Decided uh, to be a rock musician. That didn't work out. Although I got a few, <laughs> I got a few gigs. Uh, a couple of pretty good gigs. One with the Fifth Dimension back in the Whoa. in the late sixties. Yeah, Peace Love Groovy. We <laughs> did, uh, and I did. I was the bass player in the rock musical Hair for about two years. Oh wow, that's that, so cool. That, that big famous uh, hair production with everybody. The big, the big famous oh, wow. hair. You know the one where they all take their clothes off. And, you know, <laughs> that that was very revolutionary at its time mm -hmm. uh for its time i should say but yeah uh god had my passion was always electronics and music and studios so i built a recording studio and uh ran a very successful music recording studio for many many years at which point i stumbled into film music because it was totally by accident there was a film director in there that needed a score and the person he hired, and I won't mention any names because that's not fair, but <laughs> fair, the, fair. the composer, the Canadian film composer that he hired kind of botched it all up. Yeah. And, and the director is kind of sitting there, you know, 
<laughs> licking his wounds, saying, "Oh, I'm I'm really screwed. I <laughs> I've spent all my money. I have no more time. I have no more money, and I don't have any score." Oh no! So I swung in like you know, mighty mouse. Here I come to save the day. <laughs> and I and I said, "Look, I, I I know what you what you need on this film, and I feel for you. And uh, l- let me have a shot at it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to pay me, and you don't have to use it. So you really have nothing to lose." <laughs> and he said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah. Let me let me have a shot at it because I thought." I'd like to try this. You know, I was young and stupid, and I thought, why not? <laughs> so I did it, and he loved it, and I ended up doing five films for him afterwards, and I put me on the map, and then I got to do, to do Bob Clark's film because somebody heard what I did and liked that, so they hired me to do that one. Incredible, and the rest is cinematic history. Sort of, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the way it works in, in this horrible business where you never really, you know, almost anything great that happens is a total accident <laughs> it's all a fluke so you never yeah. know that your scores are going to be iconic as you're making them true and some of the some of the scores that i thought were just the most biggest collection of junk and the fat I didn't think much of the films either <laughs> today like this is what blows me away you know when you fast forward 30 40 years these films are now people are like like prom night They're, they all love it and i mm. think why? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually the one I was going to bring up because I still sing the little prom night, everything is all right to myself all the time because it's the best. <laughs> well, I wrote that song uh, uh, sort of overnight because I, I thought, no, everything wasn't all right. The producer, <laughs> the producer said, look, I got to have six disco songs and I need them by tomorrow. And I thought, you want me to write six songs in one evening and have them recorded and in the studio to to use in the film in like 12 hours. So am I hearing this right? Wow. That's incredible. But you did and it, he right? Said, well, I, I, you know what? I kind of didn't have a choice because <laughs> what the guy, and I won't again mention names, but if you really wanted to, you could go on IMDb and figure out who the producer is. But anyway, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get accused of, you know, but these are all true stories. The, the producer had, put in six of the biggest disco hits you can imagine. I mean, he had oh, no. Gloria, Gloria Gaynor's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I Will Survive. Sure. He had, uh, I, I can't even remember all, but these were the top, yeah. top 40 hits. So he had them in the, in the, in the film. They shot to these hits. They shot the mm-hmm. dance sequences to these hits. And when they went to get on the phone to try and buy the licensing rights, they found out that the licensing rights for these songs cost more than the entire uh, movie yeah. cost. Hey. Of course, of, <laughs> of course. course. That seems like <laughs> yeah. some uh, producer 101. Don't do that. Well, yeah, but producer 101, these guys, I don't even know if they even got out of grade six because, <laughs> you know, why would you do that? Yeah. No, that's I think I think uh, the publishing company for I Will Survive wanted two hundred fifty thousand U.S. Wow. If I can recall. So then, when you were composing to it, did you watch the footage, or did you just like understand what the beats per minute were and kind of compare the two, and then write to that? All of the above. And what I did was, I, I mean, if you look at the film, and I can say this now because I think I'm safe from a lawsuit. <laughs> I. Uh, uh, you know, if you look at some of the the songs and the lyrics, okay, um, I will survive. If you listen to it, 
it's very close. If you listen to what I wrote, which uh. is love me till I die. <laughs> okay. It's almost identical to why we'll survive. I changed the subject matter. I changed the melody. I used the same beats per minute because you can't copyright that. Yeah. And uh, the same basic instrumentation, the same guitar riffs, drum you know, beats and bass patterns. So if you look at all six of the tunes, they all resemble another song that I won't oh, mention. Wow, that seems like a fun game for somebody to play. <laughs> uh, well, I remember, I remember the producer saying to me, I want you to come as close as you can to these songs. And I said, well, how close do you want me to come? Because, I mean, I smell lawsuits all over the place here. <laughs> so my question was, how close should I come? And you know what his answer was? He says, I want you to come close enough that they sue us, but not close enough that they'll win. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredibly clever, actually. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's a lot of a lot of art is that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You should have asked, uh, him, uh, asked him how good his lawyers were. Then it's like, yeah. So how good are your uh, lawyers? Because that'll be how I play fast and loose. Well, the truth is, you know, we did get sued. Um, but <laughs> what happened was, well, first of all, I thought close enough that they sue us, but close enough that not close enough that they'll win. I thought, well, I don't remember this part in uh, taking this up in university. Mm -hmm. They never really told us about this. Yeah, what's the legalities um, of but, copying a song? Yeah. But one of the, but this was how insane. And I know we're off topic here, but what oh, the hell? Fine. Yeah, I'm loving it. Uh, yeah, so so he says he he has a screening. Okay, this is a screening like a preview screening is when the film isn't finished, but you still have an audience just to get the feedback. You know, mm -hmm. focus groups and all yeah. that stuff. All right, so who does he invite to one of the screenings? Uh oh. He invites one of the composers of one of the disco songs that we didn't <laughs> agree to pay. Wow. So yeah. the guy's sitting there, and he says. This sounds awfully <laughs> close to my song. <laughs> uh, this sounds exactly like the song that you didn't want to pay me for. Yeah. You know, is this guy a bit like a serial killer at the end of his own, like, <laughs> yeah. berserker where he's just waiting for someone to catch him? Yeah. He's, like, sending terrible things to the police, being like, come get me, coppers. Uh, yeah, he's a bit of a Donald. He was a bit of a Donald Trump. I should, I mean, he's dead now, but he was like a, <laughs> he was like a Donald Trump where, like, he just loves to stir up shit mm, get everybody's yeah. you know he he doesn't he didn't put out fires he started them yeah. oh, okay you know for a producer uh, normally a producer's primary role is to put out fires on mm. on the production because in film anything can happen and usually does <laughs> so the producer runs around and figures out how to he's got the fire extinguishers and he knows how to keep everybody calm and put it you know keep everything at bay but this producer went the opposite way when things were going well he started <laughs> started a, a fire and caused chaos you know <laughs> which was kind of like a, a bit of a donald trump you know he just yeah. i didn't understand it but anyway, long story even more boring. What happened was he ended up he ended up making a deal with the uh, with the the composer for the song that we ripped off, and I I think the guy sued him for like three million dollars and settled for three three grand or something. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's like all right, pocket change. It's fine. Well, he just said, "Look, I'll give you, I'll give you this much, and tell your lawyer to go to you know where, and you know, <laughs> let's let, let's call it a day. If not, we'll fight about it for ten years, and 
you know, and we'll we'll just you know keep it alive for ten years, and we can both ring up huge legal costs. <laughs> and and you know, and the truth of the matter is, between us now, I I knew enough because of my I guess my schooling, I I knew enough to change it so that if it got into a courtroom, mm. a music a musicologist what they call musicologists would analyze it and say, well, it's not really the same. I mean, it has similarities, but it's not. I think we would have got away with it. Wow. Yeah. And disco is tough in that disco is incredibly repetitive and you use a lot of the same downbeat. There's that doom, doom, doom kind of thing that you oh, yeah. do um, that yeah. like how and I mean, there's so many ones that start that I'm like, OK, is it this song? Is it this song? Is it this song? Like there very much is a specific genre rule book for disco that it would be hard to argue around. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, disco, a lot of a lot of musical forms are, are like that. I, I mean, and the lyrics were changed enough so that you know, like most, and most of the time, this is no secret that uh, when these things go into a courtroom, most of the judges are tone deaf. So, <laughs> you know, you're not dealing with a judge who's got any musical yeah. uh, aptitude at all. It really becomes uh, the lawyers who have to build a case. Mm. And to do that, they get the musicologists saying, here's where the similarities are. Here's where the differences are. Now you make the call. Are there more differences than there are similarities? And one of the big things they look at is lyrics. Mm. So, you know, love me till I die doesn't sound anything like I will survive. Yeah. Although in a way it does, but you know what I mean? It's different enough. Mm -hmm. That like, unless you really had an ear for it, you wouldn't be able to trace that pattern. Probably not. Yeah. No. Interesting. No. You could build a good case for it, but I think <laughs> I think at the end of the day, you'd have a pretty good chance of losing. And and I think this this guy from Montreal, his the guy who's musically, it was one of these early Montreal disco hits that mm. somehow hit onto the world stage. He his lawyer might have said, "Hey, you know what? You could lose. Mm. You take the money and run." Yeah. You know? The movie's a piece of crap anyway. It's never going <laughs> to go anywhere. Yeah, it's got exactly. this girl, yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis. What's the, She's going nowhere. <laughs> well, yeah, Le Leslie Nielsen, this yes. old man with gray hair. Who the hell's going to watch this? Yeah. And who's going to believe it? And to tell you the truth, to be very honest, when we screened the movie for audiences, they hated it. Mm. Wow. The movie did not test well at all. Wow. Well, because it's, I mean, it, it parts of it are rip-off-y and parts of it aren't, right? Like, it's not exactly the most original premise. It definitely fits into the whole, like, Halloween, Black Christmas, like it does that Absolutely. that sort of thing. But, you know, Absolutely. teenagers. Yeah. Um, but it does have its moments of, like, strange originality. And I think that's what people have sort of glommed on to, that it is just, like, weird enough that it's not a flash in the pan. I hope you're right. I mean, I have yet to be able to figure out what it is they like. About <laughs> yeah, well, I think we're we're much more uh, prom night two. Hello, Mary Lou fans between so. us. Well, so. well, uh, yeah, I did that one, and to tell you the truth, that was never called. That was never supposed to be a prom night. Yeah, that's a that's a that, retroactive title, right? Well, that was the producer getting greedy, saying, "Hey, wait a minute! If we take this film, we call it Prom Night 2. Mm-hmm. You know, and make a few tweaks in the dialogue in the script. We can we can come out as a sequel to the big hit Prom yeah. Night, which which against anybody's uh, <laughs> you know, we're no. I mean, that movie should never have been the hit that it was. It was a total <laughs> accident that, yeah. that movie took off. Well, that's okay. crazy. 
because it was it, it, it didn't play well. Yeah. It was badly it was badly put together. It <laughs> took over a year to edit it because every time they they'd edit it and they'd screen it, they'd go into the theater and say, "You know what? This thing doesn't make any sense." <laughs> wow! But you you ended and up it, doing every prom night, did you not? Yeah, I did all four of them. Yeah, and 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 in my opinion, and I and I know the film, four films quite well. I think Prom Night Two is way better than Prom Night One. Oh, it's a oh, lot yeah. more fun, at least. Yeah, 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 and it and it it hangs together. The script makes more sense. Everything you know kind of gels together, and it's it's just a, a little bit more entertaining. Yeah. Um, but but for some reason, that first one, I still get people contacting me saying oh i'd love to have a soundtrack of that uh, of that film and to this day there still is no soundtrack album for that what there's i can't help but wonder if that's because of the licensing stuff that you were talking about that like people are going to start analyzing and being like it's a little too close it's this although what's the statute of limitations on that no that's not that's got nothing to do with it becky it's it's really no it's not nothing to do with licensing at all it's just got to do with that the producers are all dead and the Uh, movies the movies uh, changed hands like five times. I think uh, Alliance Atlantis had it for a while, then they got rid of it. And I don't know who owns it now. And nobody really kind of cares. Yeah, that's except the, except maybe a handful of fans. Yeah, you know? there's lately there's a big movement uh, of like vinyl pressings of kind of horror scores and things. And maybe oh, maybe that'd pick it up at some point. Who knows? But I think it takes a lot of work. Oh, you think? Okay, you you are right. It does. I just did one for My Bloody Valentine, yeah. which which uh, I scored again back in the eighties, and you know the guy pressed five hundred copies on mm. vinyl. I said, "Well, what are you going to do with five hundred? Even if you sell them all, how much does the amount of money justify the work that went into making it?" Mm, yeah. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I, I don't know, I, it, there's something to it, but uh, maybe it's just a labor of love? Well, I think they believe that, you know, it's going to catch on and they're going to sell a million, but I don't, mm. I know that, I know that won't happen. There just aren't <laughs> enough, there's not enough uh, horror fans out there to, to sell a million copies. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Well, I know yeah. John Carpenter seems to be doing something. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, there's you know we're in a different league. If you're if you're talking about Star Star Wars or Superman yeah, yeah, or fair, something, fair. Like that. yeah, but these are too. yeah, yeah, these are low budget Canadian films that <laughs> somehow got known, got noticed. That people love. So let's talk about the because uh, this is one actually I'd never heard of before, and I am not going to lie, shocked because holy crap, is this cast amazing. It is an incredible film that I liked very, very much and a fascinating take on Sherlock Holmes that I don't think I've ever seen it played this way before. Uh, you scored this. You said it took a year and a half of your life. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be looking at Murder by Decree, which according to IMDb is your second film. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So this one is definitely more classic and obviously goes with your more classical training. Um, you score this with the London Philharmonic, which must have been insane. Uh, how was that for you? <laughs> involved <laughs> well, with this one? <laughs> well, what was insane was I, I didn't even know I was going to London, England. You know, we I got a call literally overnight saying, can you get on the next plane to London? Uh, we, we, we wanted to talk about the music and you know, get you to look at doing a score for this Sherlock Holmes uh, murder by decree with Christopher Plummer, James Mason, 
Genevieve Bujo. I mean, the, look at the cast. It's an, it's really an amazing. It's ridiculous. As you, yeah, it's an incredible cast. So I thought, well, you know, wait a minute. I think I was like 25 or 24. <laughs> wow. Something like that. And I thought, I don't have any money from these guys. I don't know who they are. I'm going to get on a plane and just fly there because they told me. And to make it even, <laughs> to make it even more interesting, my wife, we just had our first baby. And he, was, he wasn't even a year old, you know, and we're... <laughs> pack everybody up overnight and fly to England. We didn't even know who was going to pick us up at the airport or where we were going to be going, even if we did get picked up at the airport. Wow. So this was, this was just a leap of faith. And I, I thought, well, what have I got to lose? You know, worst happens, you know, I get a little tour of London and we'll fly back home. I don't know. So how did you get, this is your first um, interaction with Bob Clark and you'd go on to continue to work with him more. Uh, for those who don't know in our audience, which why are you listening to this podcast if you don't yeah. know, um, Bob Clark is, uh, is an American uh, director who made a lot of money in a lot of films in Canada. He invented the slasher genre for all intents and purposes with Black Christmas. Uh, a Christmas Story is also his. Uh, this one is his foray into thrillers and like intellectual puzzles. Um, you name it, this man has kind of created mm. it. So um, how Oh, and Porky's. How can we possibly forget Porky's? Yeah. Uh, that was until well, recently. Well, we'd like to. Yeah. We'd like to. <laughs> exactly. Well, it just keeps showing up on so many well, lists. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll notice that's not the one I picked. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate and And I have a feeling, like, I'm wondering if we're going to have to do, like, a very special episode to talk about it. Because, uh, yeah, I can't see anyone bringing that one up voluntarily and being like, this is uh, my on. favorite movie. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, your interactions with Bob Clark, how you met him, and how you continue to kind of work with him? Absolutely. I got to know Bob through a friend of a mutual friend, Carl Zetrer, who went to school with Bob Clark down here in Florida, which is where I am right now. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, they're not too far south from where I, I live in Florida. Uh, Bob and Carl went to university together and they were they were pretty good friends for most of the well, for their entire life until Bob passed away just, you know, a few years ago. Um, so Carl Carl got the call actually from Bob saying, you know, I'm going to go to, I'm making this movie and I want you to help me out with the music. And I think Carl said, this is a little out of my league. You know, this is Sherlock Holmes, 1888, classic Victorian England style music. This isn't something I can whip off on a piano. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is, this is going, to, which is by the way, how Carl did Black Christmas. Mm. Wow. I did not do Black Christmas. No, Carl did, and he—it was one of these horror films where you know, you know, the old tricks—you throw a bag of nails in a piano, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, slow it down, and it becomes really creepy, mm -hmm. uh, and it works. But you can't do that on a Sherlock Holmes movie with a cast like this, and a movie that's that, that's big and wide, like like uh, Murder by Decree was. So Carl kind of knew that he was a little out of his league. And I had met him in LA on some record deals, but we won't talk about that because that's another story. <laughs> anyway, he, 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 he called me up and said, look, uh, you want to, you want to get in on this? Uh, I, I could use your help. And I said, well, all right, that, that's fine. That sounds pretty good to me. So I met Bob through Carl and what had happened was, you know, I ended up doing the whole, the writing, the score. That's why I had to live in England for a while because they were shooting it while I was writing the music. Mm. 
and ended up going and booking the London's Philharmonic and conducting them at the age of 25. I'm standing in front of a hundred-piece orchestra that's like world class, <laughs> and they're playing my score. And for the record, this is the first symphonic score I had ever written. Oh wow! So I felt very, very good at the end of it when they all stood up and gave me a round of applause <laughs> after the, the, the recording sessions were finished. They they said this is a beautiful score and the producers were all in the recording studio in the booth and they were grinning and saying oh this is this is good we're we're very happy it was a big success mm -hmm. i ended up you know winning a genie awards bob got a few genie awards and this thing kind of put us on the map for a serious you know film uh it was a classic period piece film yeah. was taken seriously yeah, I, I have a question just about as your first uh, orchestral score. Uh, like, what kind of inspirations do you take for that? Like, did you just kind of go off the the your classical background, or did you care about other Sherlock Holmes things or Victorian music? Like, what was your where did you kind of start? Well, a little bit of research, you know. You 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 look at uh, like if you have you seen the film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you'll, you'll notice at the very end, there's a, the closing credits, there's a song that's an old traditional Gaelic, or, or a, I guess it's more of a British uh, uh, folk song called Farewell to Sterling. Now, I dug that up out of an old songbook, and this has been written like 300 years ago. Yeah. And I thought, what a, because the movie ends on a sort of a bittersweet note, right? Uh, he he solves the mur the murder, but it's kind of tragic that that you know Mary Kelly died and all these women were were, were butchered. Uh, so it had a very sad kind of lamenting uh, feel to it. So I found this song "Farewell to Sterling," which became the closing credit music. I thought this this kind of really, in a way, sums up the whole movie. And what if we did it with the orchestra? And if you notice, it starts off with Chris Plummer playing it on the violin. Mm. He plays the he plays the first eight bars on the violin, and then, by magic of film, ninety piece orchestra joins him, accompanies him on the violin. The interesting part about that is Chris Plummer, who's a a good actor, a classic man, a very classy guy. He didn't have a clue how to hold a violin, <laughs> yeah. much less look how he was. Looking like he was playing it. Yeah. So I spent a whole afternoon with Chris Plummer in his hotel room <laughs> trying to show how to hold it at least so that it looked like he could play it. So you can fake it just a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if, if the guy's if he's not even holding it properly, you know, you, don't forget, we didn't have CGI. We didn't have all yeah. the wonderful tools that you have today to, to fake something like that. Well, that opening scene, I, I'd love to, to talk about because it's, um, first and foremost, it's got the Bob Clark, very original use of fonts in everything. I love Bob Clark fonts for all of his his films. Whenever he does the credits, they're always very identifiable. And yeah. I love that you have this incredible, like, foggy London. You're kind of streaming over top of the rooftops and everything. And your score just comes in and just sort of swells up. And it's almost like the fog itself. Um, and we 
right. is really fantastic. So, and, and there's also moments too. So something I really loved about this Holmes that I'd never seen before is he's emotional. Like he cries over uh, Genevieve Bougeau and I'd never seen that before. Like um, everyone always plays him as mildly on the spectrum. And yeah. this was not that kind of Holmes. He's very passionate. He's very much a man of action. And you have these moments. I wanted to ask you about this where the music is almost joyful in moments where he's where he's coming to some sort of a realization, like when he first looks at Annie Crook or when, after he does the big exposition revelation scene and he's in front of freaking John Gilgood and like yeah, and yeah. all that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Can, I, can I just ask as, as to what the what the inspiration of that is? Because it seemed almost counterintuitive, but it fit. It was really interesting. Yeah. Well, the visuals, visuals provided all the inspiration. If you looked at just how much depth is in that that footage i mean the if you look at the bricks on the old buildings you could see them sweating and the moisture coming out and the cobblestone roads and the horses and the mist coming out of the horses noses you know all of it was very surreal and Mm. very very almost uh I, i can't even it was creepy but not in a threatening way you knew something was going on but and you knew it wasn't good, but yet um, there was a vibe to the whole thing that, that was kind of this pleasant, very euphoric eeriness. That's the only way I can put it. And I wanted the music to, to it, it went with the footage. It didn't play against it. I mean, it really, it really did play right into what you were looking at. And were you mostly getting, being able to compose from footage or were you composing prior to the footage existing? both because i was there i was on the set i saw chris Plummer and james mason in character doing the scenes and then i would see the rushes at at night or the next day i would see the footage that they shot and i thought my god these images are 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 breathtaking they're beautiful Mm -hmm. Uh, this is going to need the right kind of music to uh to accompany them you don't put you know, tiptoe through the tulips on this on this footage. <laughs> yeah. So this this has got to have the right feel to it, and uh, and it's it's you know I did a lot of horror films after that. It's you can make scary music real easy. Any mm. kid with a Mac computer can make scary music. <laughs> Was that a shot at John Carpenter? Was that a shot at John <laughs> no, Carpenter? <laughs> it's, not, it's a shot at John Carpenter and all the people who want to be John Carpenter. <laughs> okay, yeah, but, that's fair. But, but you got to remember that we didn't have Mac computers back then. And yeah. if you wanted to make scary music, you did what Carl did. You throw yeah. nails into a piano. <laughs> I was going to say, you're not without your inside of a piano in this score. <laughs> oh, well, we, we, well, we, we do that. We, we'd record a pipe, you know, water flowing through a pipe yeah. and run it backwards and slow it down and put lots of echo on it. And there, there's your booga booga music. You know? <laughs> so, so anybody, you know, I could have put booga booga music on the Sherlock Holmes, yeah. but it's, but I thought, no, it's too classy for yeah. that. Yeah, I was actually, I was going to say that I really like the uh, the the kind of classic Bob Clark sequences, the point of view killer parts and the dream sequences that they have of the yeah. like super eerie music. That's that's kind of some of my favorite stuff. Yeah, he did a good job. He made he made it work, you know. Now, is this a movie that you're that you even just as a film itself you particularly enjoy? Like, it seems like you're very proud of it because it is. I mean, it's remarkable. But um, but what about it kind of speaks to you as like a, a good, solid Canadian film? Yeah, it, it's it's a period piece. It, none of us who are 
talking today or breathing knows what England looked like in 1888. Mm -hmm. And I think, to me, it's a trip in past. It's a, it's a history thing, a period piece. You get to go back in time and actually feel what that would have been like to be in, living in London at that time. Baker Street, all those wonderful streets that are still there if you ever go to London, you know. And, and actually, it, except for all the, you know, cell phone towers, it still pretty <laughs> much looks, this, looks the same. A lot of it. The buildings have stayed. The streets are still narrow. And, you know, if you, you go there like right now, you will see pretty much the same thing except for the, like I said, the uh, the occasional skyscraper that peeks up in the background or you'll see the London Eye from one of the vintage, <laughs> yeah, that's vantage points. You know, I mean, there are things that are obviously weren't there 130 years ago, but... Um, Imagine being alive at that time and, you know, having to take horses anywhere you wanted and and having this Jack the Ripper loose in the neighborhood and not knowing, you know, if you're next. I mean, it, that's to me, the movie puts you right there. Yeah. How do you guys feel about combining these classical uh, characters with a real uh, a real situation? And surprisingly, this film is actually incredibly accurate to like the names of the actual uh, the actual victims of Jack the Ripper, the people who were involved. Some of them are changed a little bit. Um, like I don't think the Duke and Clarence's name was actually that uh, was actually that. Like no. there are some things that no. are changed around. Um, but like, and the other thing Bob Clark does that it goes across all of his uh, horror or thriller genre films, he is incredibly sympathetic to the victims, um, which is huge because yeah. a lot of people are not, especially towards women. But um, how do you feel about introducing fictional characters with real life circumstances? Well, it's cool if you do it in a way that doesn't insult the audience. Yeah. You know, you, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, if you play the audience for being, you know, having the IQ of a, <laughs> a snail, <laughs> yeah. then, then you're insulting them and you're saying, all right, now I'm asking you to suspend your uh, disbelief too far and, and it's it's an insult to your intelligence but if you do it in a in a, in a way that's uh challenging and believable like I, i'll bet most people would have a hard time figuring out what was real and what was made up in that film yeah oh yeah for sure okay you know because the, there's so much factual stuff he goes on to explain the jew a's you know or yeah. the jews are not the ones that he, you know all of that is real that that was there was a, a, a historical basis for that and the the mason uh, signs what, that he's doing are actual mason yeah, signs and that's a whole thing which <laughs> mason stuff's just so silly to me but i appreciate him taking the piss out of that a bit yeah <laughs> yeah you know he while well, he was kind of joking with it but or, or saying how stupid it was but yes they were all freemasons they were all members of that uh secret society and they were all bound to protect each other by that society you know that's how it happened if, if there was a real jack the ripper which maybe there was maybe there wasn't who knows yeah 
could have been multiple people. I have no theories. I can say this. this <laughs> yeah. I'll just accept yeah. this movie. <laughs> um, yeah. I'd like to talk about the portrayals of Holmes and Watson, because like I said, these are very different Holmes and Watsons mm. from what we're used to seeing, especially up until that point. Um, and Christopher Plummer had played Holmes in another um, Sherlock Holmes film called Silver Blaze, I believe, mm. um, just a couple years previously. His Holmes and his and uh, James Mason's Watson are playful in a way you never really get to see Holmes and Watson be playful. Because I find with a lot of versions of Holmes and Watson, um, there's a condescension that happens and you never totally understand why. And like the, the writer's efforts to make Holmes be so brilliant and difficult, you lose the love and you you lose that camaraderie between Holmes and Watson. And this one, you can see that Watson isn't as bright, like he's not as quick as Holmes is, but he can certainly challenge Holmes and you get it and it makes sense. And you're like, oh yeah, this is why they're buddies because they're able to keep up with each other. Um, and you have that brilliant bit with the pea where James Mason is just stabbing at the plate the whole time and then Holmes just like solves the problem, but not in a way that James Mason wants him to solve the problem. Like he does it in like that. Well, yeah. Yeah, it works, but that's not what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen a playfulness between the two of them like that before. And how much of that do you think is casting? How much of that do you think is writing? Or is it just a little bit of everything? Because it's a different interpretation. Well, they're all ac excellent actors. And I think uh, I would attribute it more to directing. Yeah, Bob was there. Bob told them how to play that. And oh, okay, so James Mason Lason looks up to him and he says, you squashed my pee. <laughs> you know, and it's just this very kind of juvenile, stupid little sequence that has no relevance to anything. <laughs> okay. But, but, but it, but what it does do is it shows just the, the little bit of friction between them, but it's not a rivalry that really would go anywhere. You know what I mean? It's just, okay, look, you're frustrating me trying to grab that pee. I'll fix this squash. And now there's this, there's this little comedic moment where you, you know, squashed my pee. Imagine squashing a fellow's pee like that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, it really sets up the whole relationship with them because as it turns out, as you see James Mason, yeah, he's a little slow, but he is the good doctor, the trusting good man who you can always count on to do the right thing. And he'll be there for you no matter what, which is what he does. And, and that's what Bob envisioned yeah. uh, Watson to be. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, you see other movies, the ones with uh, the ones, the later ones that came out with Robert Downey Jr. and mm. uh, what's his name? Jude Law. Who played the Watson character. Yeah. Jude Law. I mean, these are, these are little different uh, portrayals of the same two characters. Well, much different <laughs> than Chris Plummer and James Mason. But... Um, you know, but that's, again, a directorial thing. That's how they wanted this to play out. And Bob Bob wanted to make a, a serious film. Sorry, Bob wanted to make it a serious a serious film. He didn't want to portray Holmes as, Holmes as being a cocaine-snorting, you know, bumbling <laughs> yeah. idiot to just happen to be able to figure out murders, you know. Well, reading some of the, the rumors, now you might be able to confirm this. Was it originally supposed to be Lawrence Olivier and Peter O'Toole? No. Okay, that's all over the internet. I, I was like, where that came from? Okay, yeah, I thought so. And no. also, they're both no. Holmeses. I wouldn't put either of them as Watson. Uh, ooh, Peter O'Toole Peter, and, and, and uh, Olivier. Yeah, yeah, they're both Holmeses. Neither of them is a Watson. 
No, no, and 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 you're all forget, or I should say, you all. They are all forgetting. This was a Canadian Anglo-Canadian co-pro. Yeah, we needed Canadian actors, yeah. and Plummer is a Canadian. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, I mean, I, I do want to talk a little. So bit. there's, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I just want to talk about your whole career before we uh, get done here. But uh, before we do, do you have any other okay. memories from that set or anything that like stand out? Oh, I have a ton of me- <laughs> no, well, t- tons and tons of memories because, like I said, we were we were living there at the time, and then uh, you know, just just day to day life in in London. Is, is a challenge or was a challenge because <laughs> have you ever been there? Have you yes. ever, have you been to London, England? I, okay. I so you, not. you know that the, the British can uh, sometimes we weren't right in London. We were in a little town outside in the country cause I needed a, you know, we were not going to stay in a hotel for that length of time. <laughs> so we rented a little house in Dorking, <laughs> which is like, well, I'm not making this up. It's on the map. Check it out. D-O-R-K-I-N-G. We rented a house in, in a little town called Dorking where you had to, you know, put the milk bottle out in the morning and wait for the milkman to bring milk because we had a little baby. Yeah. And uh, and we're living there. And, and like the simplest thing, like going to the cleaners or, or mailing a letter or you name it, the simplest thing that you you and I take for granted here in North America would take like a half a day to do there. <laughs> it's a different pace because they they're so they're so. It's a different pace, and they're so well. Just they're British, you know. Everything, <laughs> uh, you know, and the streets are all run around in circles. They have the roundabouts, as you probably know, and uh, there's no signs on most of them, so you have no idea what direction you're going or you know <laughs> where you are. So we got. We got lost a lot and, uh, you know, and got a little tired after a couple of months of this, uh, this, just this insanity and this pace of life, because, uh, as I say, it's, it's so different than what we're used to here. So, you know, you can't pick up the phone and order Chinese food, right? I mean, it's just none of that is possible there. So, uh, you know, you have to plan everything and especially with a, with a nine month, uh, baby, yeah. You know, it, it it had its challenges, and me trying to come up with this score, which in itself was a huge challenge. Oh yeah. Well, just and, remembering you know, how young you were, like that's just with, and this being your second film, like that's crazy. Yeah, and you know, and I, I kind of dropped everything and and came, went across the pond to do this, and I my my studio was open, and I'm I'm running a business in Toronto. Mm. And yet I'm away from it for this length of time. So I've got all these, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on the phone trying to put out fires in Toronto because I had someone kind of taking care of it for me. But as you can well imagine, there were problems. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it seems like you're an excellent multitasker. Did you ever want to produce anything? Like, did you ever have a project that you'd wanted to produce yourself or anything like that? You're saying film? Or? Uh, yeah, film specifically. No, no. Film was a, to me is a, a huge undertaking. I produced a lot of records, mm-hmm. CDs, uh, you know, albums for various artists. Um, you know, and I, like I said, running a studio and being an engineer and uh, all that stuff was, yeah, it's a lot of multitasking going on. But no, to make a film, and I have a lot of respect for anybody who tries to make a film today because it's not easy. I mean, <laughs> there's so many pieces to the puzzle, and 
you, you know, if you can make a film and even get it finished, I think that's, you know, quite admirable. Oh yeah, totally. I, now I have a question for you just before uh, before we finish up here. I guess Murder by Decree is is such a cool movie, and neither of us had seen it before. Uh, do you have any other work throughout your career? You've done so much that you're particularly proud of that you think people should check out. Well, you know, there's some. <laughs> I don't know how to how to equate this in a, in a. There's a there's quite a few films that I think are are well made. Yeah. Um, but the ratio good films to the bad ones is <laughs> i mean for every for every you know 10 good films you're going to find 100 bad ones sure and uh yeah i could i could i could name a few that i think were there's some good tv that i i've done i mean i did a mini series called for the man in the machine which was about a, a period again you'll find I'm a big history buff, so you know, anytime I'm, I'm going on about a film, it's usually a period piece. Mm. This was Henry Ford inventing the automobile and the whole story of his life with Edsel and his, you know, the scandals that went on. You talk about uh, <laughs> the sexual harassment today. Well, <laughs> should watch this miniseries. <laughs> it, it went on back in like 1922. Um, but very very good miniseries that uh, got pretty good reviews, and I was quite proud of the score to that because again the music had to be epic, but it had to be uh, you know you you couldn't do it with a, a beatbox yeah. you know. So that was a good one. Uh, there's been some good some good uh, theatrical stuff too. Um, a film a, another Bob Clark film from the hip. Okay, that's the Judd Nelson one, yeah. That, yeah, you know your stuff. Boy, you, that, wow, you're good, Becky. Uh, J J Judd Nelson played in that one, and it was uh, a very, very good film in t terms of, you know, it made you question the legal system in, in America. And, you know, today it would probably, if it got released, it would do very, very well. Another good one that, again, is a British film, uh, it never did well because of a very. It was a picture called "The Fourth Angel" hmm. with Jeremy Iron. Jeremy Irons oh. was the star in it. Very, very well made. Shot in England. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I'm very proud of the score. But the film was about terrorists on an airplane, oh. and and guess when the film was supposed to be released. Take oh, a wild no. guess. Oh, no. This is not... We've heard of other Canadian films that were sunk because of that specific American incident. So, yep. Well, this film this film was an, an Anglo-Canadian co-pro, again, and it was about terrorists who took down a plane and killed this guy, Jeremy's wife and daughter. Oh, you know? no. And the film was finished and ready to be released on September the twenty. Wow. Oh, any, uh, God, I can't remember the name. It was the weekend after 9 11. Wow. Did it ever so, get released? You, no, because it, it, it got, it, well, it, by the time everyone had kind of gotten over the trauma of 9 11, the film was too, it was just too dated and it was still, it was not the kind of thing you could really come out with. Uh, the producers just, said no we'll just go straight to video with it mm. because it was just it had the film had 9 11 not happened and this film came out i think it would have done very well because it was a 
It was very dramatic picture. If you ever get a chance to rent it, take yeah. check it out. Wow. I, and now, I mean, I have to ask the opposite question. Is there any composing work that you're very proud of buried in a movie that you think is the worst? Please say the brain. Yes. Please say the brain. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to say the brain. <laughs> there's, there's a quote. I, listen, there's a lot of close seconds. But one, one that, that I really would not want anyone to see, not anyone that I like anyway, is a picture called The Pink Chiquitas. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you ever run into that, run across that film, please. That's the Frank it. Stallone one, right? That's for sure. Boy, you guys know your stuff. I, I mean, I, I, I like uh, I like looking up little trailers, so I, I, I googled some Pink Chiquitas, but yeah, yeah, Pink, Pink Chiquitas. That and they, they were so sneaky. The film was was so stupid, and the star of it was Frank Stallone, who's Sylvester Stallone's brother. Mm. So. The producers think they're going to pull a fast one on, on the audience, and they put on the marquee on the billboard, the Pink Chiquita starring Stallone. <laughs> wow. they, very, they very conveniently forgot to put his first name. Oh, wow. Now, I had to work with Frank Stallone on the set uh, of that film, and Frank Stallone, <laughs> he can't act. I mean, he's a nice guy. He's a hell of a nice guy, but he's... He's, his acting skills are not <laughs> I'm sorry wow. and that wouldn't matter even if it, they were good the film the whole film was so stupid that uh, that uh, I don't think any good, good actor could save it but maybe the score <laughs> maybe that'll come out on uh, record they'll press that <laughs> pink Chiquita's a vinyl LP. of that someone should remix it I, I will totally push for a remix <laughs> yeah. well how about somebody destroy it like just put it in a <laughs> in a can with gasoline and set it on fire. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Paul, how can people check out your work nowadays? Is there some uh, somewhere that you're, there's like a website or something you'd like people, or uh, social media, any way you'd like people to check out your stuff? Well, you know, I, I don't really, I had a website and I don't even know if it's still going, but normally I get fan mail. People come, call me up and say, you know, can I get a, they usually want a soundtrack. Of course, you know? yep. Yeah, now there's a, quite a few soundtracks that are coming out now, and we just did. Uh, they just put my bloody Valentine out for last Valentine's Day. They the, the vinyl is all red, like yeah, like blood red. That's so cool. And uh, yeah, now they're doing uh, popcorn is about to come out in February next oh, month, cool. which is is again didn't do well, but it was kind of an interesting movie because it's a movie about movies. Yeah, so uh, that's coming out. There is talk of a prom night. Uh, four set box collection coming out. Mm. I'm, I'm working with a guy, a, a record label out in San Francisco to get that done. So we'll see if that's going to happen. But it's more soundtracks because anybody who wants to see the film can easily rent it or, yeah. or you know, rip it off somewhere. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, on this podcast, we generally have the problem and we feel bad about it and we do our best to encourage people to actually go out and buy, rent the films, you know, even at least give some money to your neighborhood uh, rental place. Um, but uh, unfortunately, because of the way licensing rights work in Canada, so often stuff expires, right? That it just ends up right on YouTube, especially the old horror exploitation stuff all ends up on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's tough too. You know, I've had people say to me, it's, I've tried to buy the film. Yeah. And it's actually it's actually easier to steal it than it is to buy it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We find that quite a bit in Canada. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such an ordeal to buy it because you, 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 if you can find it, and then getting it 
shipped or downloaded. It's just it's just so much easier to steal it on on the net because there's so much of it out there. Yeah. So you know. But out of curiosity, are you happy that the work is just being seen? Like, does it bother you fundamentally, or are you happy it's just being looked at? Oh no, it doesn't bother me. I mean, there's so these are old films, you know these 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 are films that are cult have following from uh, you know different sections of sectors of the population. The today the most of the mainstream stuff is the horror, the comic books, right? The Batman's, the Superman's, it's Iron Man's. Uh, a lot of the, the kids who just want to go to the movies, if they even go to the movies anymore, <laughs> you know. Uh, a lot of them have no interest in this stuff. These these are more sort of the diehard horror fans, or you know, the, the people who they they just love this stuff. Like this isn't horror, but a good example of what I'm talking about is the Christmas Story, mm. which is yet again about film uh, an evergreen a classic everybody knows it at Christmas time. We just saw it on TV 24 hours a day for a whole week <laughs> last month, but the fans of that movie are insane. They go to the house in Cleveland. <laughs> it's now a museum. It's a Christmas story museum. Oh, wow. And they go there and camp out and visit there and just go through the house every day and buy all the leg lamps and the little <laughs> stupid little pieces of merchandising that they made to sell to all these people people who are in love with that film they know every line of dialogue they have christmas story conventions where they come from all over america to get together with what's left of the cast and the crew and i've been to i've been to a few of them where these people are there thousands of them they come up and they they just want to hear what you have to say about christmas story because they love it Wow, that's crazy. I mean, I'd make fun of, of them, but I, I paid to see the brain in theaters, so I'm, I'm well, not much better. <laughs> oh, you're the guy who bought the ticket. <laughs> oh, okay. No, but this movie, you know, I, I go to these things because we got to see, you know, Warner Brothers put out a CD yeah. of, of the Christmas Story music and, you know, quite sold quite a few of them. And I take them down, you know, and I go and I'll autograph them and sell them for 25 bucks. And they'll say, okay, great. I've got the composer who wrote the score right here. <laughs> and then, of course, they're sitting there with their eyes gleaming. And they say, so what was it like? What was it like with Darren McGavin and the old man? And did, did you get to see the Scott Farkas and the bully? You know, like they just want to hear about it. Wow. Yeah, but they're, they're diehard fans. But, yeah. again, that's a very small percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. right there's other people it's just background uh, I, noise for yeah 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 i mean not, i don't know about the millennials if they even know what christmas story is or much less care you know it's just, it's We're just another uh, I, I, I can say i just worked <laughs> an event for ferris bueller and they did not know what ferris bueller was so i think uh, i think we're all in trouble uh, I, that's what i'm saying and you know not i'm not slamming millennials i'm just saying it's not it, it's living in the past okay yeah. it's not the future uh, and, and, and I accept that. I, I've got no, you know, misconceptions about what this is. These are old movies that did well. I'm very fortunate that as a Canadian composer, I've had, you know, I've had my share of hit movies that have come out. And, uh, and, and I'm very lucky that so many of them did well. Some of them did very well financially, like Porky's. Uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, it's the only Canadian movie that made $200 million in a year. Yeah. You, you know, uh, but 
I was just at the right place at the right time. And what boggles my mind is that Bob made that movie right after he finished Murder by Decree. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. It makes no sense. No. <laughs> it's just, but he was just, any interview I've read with him, he talks about how he was just trying to break into the mainstream. So like everything was just sort of a means to an end, which is why he's so chameleonic, chameleonic, I'm going with that, um, yeah. in, in his styles. <laughs> uh, well, that's a big part of it. There's, I knew Bob very, very well. He was a very close friend. And there was that, and there was a thing called, Money. Yeah. Mm, yes. <laughs> we all are um, familiar. <laughs> yeah. Bob, Bob was a financial disaster. <laughs> uh, he, it didn't matter how much money he made. He was always broke. Mm. He was, went, he went through it like, he, I remember one year he got a check for $11 million for the royalties on Porky's. Mm. It was gone within a year. That's impressive. He, and he was borrowing money from me. You, know? <laughs> you were that good so, friends. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I, I was a good friend. Yeah, I did. I did loan him money, but but he just he was a financial disaster. It didn't matter. He he just always he was always out of money. So Porky's he off, he was offered good money by Harold Greenberg at the time to make the movie. And the movie was really a sort of an autobiography of his life, of Bob's life. <laughs> of course, it was. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was. Well, I mean, he, he he kind of you know he he thought it'd be fun to do because you know he kind of lived that way in his high school years, and he needed the money, and he thought, what the hell? Why not? Somebody's paying me to do something I I want to do, and it might break into the mainstream. You're right. It, it, well, that's something that's so fascinating to me about his work is that, like, all of it is so progressive, but couched in these, um, in these almost traditional, like, stories. Like, even Porky's, and there's a lot of things wrong with Porky's, but there are moments in it that are, like, incredibly progressive and thoughtful. But he's, he's writing about a time and a place where, you know, you did say the N-word and you did think about women this certain way and the point of view it's from. Um, but he's almost making fun of that, saying this isn't, you know, it was it was all in good fun then, but now we can look at it and go, wasn't that stupid? Like there is a tongue and cheekness to it. Well, of course it's totally stupid. And he, he knows that. And yeah. he, Bob was a very smart man. He, he, he knew, he knew it was all of that. It was a period piece of, and, and, and very accurate. Actually, there was, there was a, a whorehouse called, I don't know if it was called Porky's, but it was in that part of Miami where the kids did go. Mm. And, and, and any teenage boy at that age is thinking about one thing all the time, as we know. And, you know, he thought, yeah, this is, let's let's do this. It'll be fun. And it was irrever- irreverent and, and very disrespectful and all of that stuff, which just made it more popular. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, why not? It, what blew me away is that this is a guy who just finished Murder by Decree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah the classiest. <laughs> And the moves out, which uh, there was a quote that Bob had about Murder by the Creeks. He was talking, um, this was in 2005, I believe. He did an interview with Friends of the Show, Exploitation, their blog, mm-hmm. um, talking about how all the remakes that were coming up. So Black Christmas was just being remade. Um, Howard Stern was in talks to remake Porky's. Like there was a few remakes. And uh, he said, Murder by the Cree will never and should never be remade because look at that cast. Like you could never, you mm. can't mess with that. We didn't even touch Donald Sutherland and how great Donald Sutherland is in it. Even though, although brief, I want to see a whole movie with that Donald Sutherland character. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you're right. And I, I don't think it ever was remade. No, and it, it couldn't be. He's right. Like, I mean, From Hell is basically the same film. If it came out today, I mean, this is exponentially better than From Hell. Um, but if it was remade today, I think people would call it a From Hell ripoff, even though the source material is much older than that. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen From Hell, but I, and I probably won't, but yeah, I, I don't think, talk, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's, we're talking about the same thing. Here. No, no, definitely not. It's just the same storyline. Yeah, more or less, yeah, yes. I guess, yeah. But but Bob's this was Bob's uh, version of Sherlock Holmes, which is different than Robert Downey Jr. and different than Basil Rathbone and the old you know the old traditional black and white Sherlock movies. They played it quite differently again, um, and and a lot of people have made the comment that they you know, I heard them say this, and I'm not saying this in a condescending way, but they'll say, I saw Murder by the Retreat. I didn't understand it. Really? Yeah, I couldn't know what was going on. Like, what what, what happened? Hmm. You see, and, uh, you, you know, it, it wasn't as entertaining to watch as Downey Jr., right, mm -hmm. and Jude Law, because they were, they were fun to watch as yeah. characters. Or it didn't really matter what the plot was. They were just fun to watch on the screen. But Murder by Decree, you had to figure out what the hell was going on with all this Freemason and hidden plots to over, you know, within the government and, and Eddie's uh, having an illegitimate baby with one of the, you know, the ladies of, of the town and then covering it all up and then how Holmes have figured all of this out. I mean, you had to work at figuring this movie out. This wasn't for someone with a, a you know, uh, just a low IQ who, who went into the theater and just wanted to see a bunch of car chases, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is not the Rambo crowd. Yeah. Anyway. I'm probably going on too much about it, but I, I've had people say, yeah, I didn't understand it. Ugh. Which is so unfortunate because, yeah, it's a beautiful puzzle. And I, if there's one thing I like in my mysteries, it's puzzles. And this was a nice one. Yeah, you had to think about it. made you think afterwards. Yep. And you think, I wonder how much of this actually did go on. Yeah. yeah. Well, the cover-ups, I'm sure. <laughs> and the, the well, yeah, yeah. yeah. All that. Hey, well, they're they still going on. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, just you don't, you don't think of England at that time as being – you think of it more as a purist kind of a, you know – this was this was a great country with great leaders, Winston Churchill, people of that ilk, mm. you know, uh, who would cover up and murder innocent women to cover up something. Well, I believe it happened. Yeah, no, totally fair. I'm sure it must have at some point. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, especially about Victorian England and all the things that were going on there. You don't have, what, 12 kids who are uh, yeah. who are all royal and get doing their best to get away with everything without having some scandals <laughs> that need to be addressed. I mean, look at our current royal family, right? Um, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Paul, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Thank you. Thank you both very much for your time. Oh, hey, no problem. It was a pleasure. 
Thank you again to Paul Zaza for coming on the show. Uh, We're so grateful for his time. And thank you to friend of the show, Matthew Jin, for connecting us. Uh, If you listeners have anyone you would like us to chat to who you think would have some great stories or you just think we should talk to them, let us know. RCMPodcast.com, on Twitter, at RCMPod, on Facebook, the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. You know where to find us. But uh, as per usual, we have our segments ready to go. Uh, We didn't want to do them with Paul, obviously, because his time is precious. And, man, he's got great stories. Um, So, Cam, you've got a Cam's Cam. Crush Corner? Oh, yes, I do. Um, so, uh, if y'all watched the movie, um, I've chosen actress, no relation, Susan Clark. I looked her up because I was uh, yeah. curious. Is she, was no, she married to Bob? No the relation, no. but she was Mary Kelly in the uh, movie, <laughs> and uh, she's actually quite famous and uh, Canadian, so let's do it. Born in Sarnia, Ontario. Uh, <laughs> not born Susan Clark at all. Uh, I've lost it, actually. I can't remember her original name. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Susan Clark is what she's famous as. Uh, but yeah, she uh, she's an actress. She actually has a, a very interesting career. She uh, started in uh, you know Canadian theater stuff, but she uh, studied at RADA. She went to oh. London and actually, uh, maybe this is why she does such a good British accent. Uh, she studied in London in, at RADA. Uh, she she's had like a great debut with a bunch of different people on the stage if you read her bio. Uh, but my favorite is some of her first acting on screen, The Benny Hill Show. <laughs> yeah, what more do you want? Uh, her big stuff is uh, essentially, there's a Clint Eastwood movie, Coogan's Bluff. She's one of the main characters in. Uh, I think one will come to, I think it is partially Canadian, Colossus the Forbin Project. Do you know that one? What? No, it's like what's a, this? It's an old sci-fi uh, it's and it's full of uh, all sorts of people. She's uh, it, it's a funny one. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there's a mystery science theater of it, but it's also like kind of okay. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, she's uh, in a whole ton of stuff. But she always kind of went back and forth uh, between Canada and the United States, okay, which is cool. Uh, and I mean, uh, by back and forth, I mean most famous for she is most famous for an American thing, which is uh, a little uh, show we like to call. Uh, Webster. Webster. <laughs> she's, oh, the she's the mom on Webster. Webster. Uh, yeah, okay. she was married in real life to Alex Karras, who's the dad on Webster. Okay. Uh, and they did a lot of projects together, actually. And Webster was kind of the big one. She got a Golden Globe for Webster. That's cool. Um, yeah, but and always... also they they star together in Porky's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where she is the main sex worker that they're after. <laughs> uh, Cherry Forever, I think is her name. It's something hilarious. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, and for yes, those Cherry listeners... <laughs> so for those listeners who were uh, concerned about us using the word prostitute, which totally fair, uh, yeah. we will do our best to use the word sex worker from here on in. Sometimes if it's a period piece, it's a little harder for us to remember. Totally our bad, yeah. but we'll, we'll I, endeavor I don't think to we use did. it. And also, yeah. whenever a person from a different generation is doing us a favor, maybe we'll uh, not be the great millennials we are and let it slide. Um... <laughs> Uh, we're, we're, I promise, outside of this podcast, we're social justice warriors oh, constantly. Totally. Annoying everybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, for Susan Clark as well, uh, she's still with us. Uh, and uh, now and again, she shows up and stuff. But the big one I would say for Canadian people is Emily of New Moon she's in. Oh. Um, so yeah, she still does a lot of, a lot of stuff, mostly LA-based still. But um, yeah, look her up. She's It's actually crazy the amount of stuff she's in. Night Moves with Gene Hackman. Jeez. Um, yeah, yeah, her IMDb is ridiculous. I'm her watching IMDb's. Cam just scroll for days. She She's the mom of Tanya Harding in a Tanya Harding TV movie, if oh. you want to compare her to Alice and Janney. And I do. Contemporaneous Tanya Harding movie. Uh, Double Negative, which is one we'll probably come uh, to, which is the horror movie that stars 
what's his face? Norman Bates. It's a Canadian one. Oh, Anthony Perkins. Anthony Perkins. It's 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 a it comes up a lot. Almost us doing it on the podcast. But uh, yeah, no, uh, that's she's got a lot of great stuff. She has uh, an Emmy for portraying a woman I've never heard of, Mildred Babe Durdekin Zaharias. What? Uh, she that's was not a real uh, name. she was a multi uh, sport athlete. Cool. That it was like a golf champion and a Olympian, uh, but she got an Emmy for that. Anyway, uh, Susan Clark, no relation. Uh, look, look her up. up. Perfect. Uh, for myself, we are going back to the NFB, NFB, and this one I'm actually going to suggest that people watch without uh, sound. Okay. So it's called The Stratford Adventure. And to be fair, it's a little bit on the lame side. And we're going here specifically, A, because it's like black and white cool realness and very much Canadiana, but also because Christopher Plummer spent a ton of time in Stratford. And mm. uh, he was one, him, Maggie Smith, like a number of giant actors have made Stratford kind of what it is. And I don't think a lot of Canadians actually understand what a big deal on a global scale Stratford actually is, that it's yeah. revitalized a lot of careers. Um, so The Stratford Adventure, it's available on uh, the NFB. Um, and it's just a lot of incredible footage of uh, uh, of um, Canadiana. So, like, there's a whole thing of um, uh, with Jack uh, Peter Peter Lawford and Jack Lemon in one film or one yeah. show, like things like that. It's totally worth your time. So, again, that's going to be on the website rcmpodcast.com and on the Facebook page. Um, so, Cam, I really liked this movie. I mean, it yeah. is from the '70s. It's got some issues um, in just in terms of pacing, and uh, yeah. but, the, but I feel like compared to any classic Sherlock Holmes, it's maybe even. Master pace, though. I do, I do not like Sherlock Holmes movies generally. Mm, yeah, there's just too much pondering, whereas this yes. one, I mean, the exposition, I think the toughest point I had with this was the the exposition of it was a bit lengthy for me. Like, well, that one scene with John, I mean, it's John freaking Gielgud. For those yeah. who don't know John Gielgud, he is one of the greatest theater actors of the 20th century um, and was also the butler in the original <laughs> Arthur yeah. with Dudley Moore and is adorable mm-hmm. in that. Um, and Liza, oh, Liza. Um, but uh, yeah, he explains the entire movie in case you didn't, in case you didn't think Well, that. that's classic Sherlock Holmes though too, you know, locking everybody in the, I guess that's classic Poirot, but <laughs> Sherlock Holmes does it too where he explains the whole thing. And I mean, it works. Like you, like we kind of touched on, the movie can be a little confusing. Yes, and you really have to have noticed like real side stuff, like like notice who stands behind the king in a thing. Yeah, um, um, I yeah. did mm-hmm. love. Uh, I love how respectful they are to the sex workers in there. Like they sure. are all full, reasonably fully rounded characters. Yeah. Um, I loved the woman. This in, if we get into famous fam- favorite moments, bleh, I loved the woman who's like check out all my own teeth, and then know. she's feeling she's feeling, and then she sees one of them is loose. And like, just you just watch her face fall in the realization. Ugh, I love that moment. It's so subtle, so unnecessary, but I really loved it. <laughs> Super depressing. I would say uh, for Bob Clark fans, the murders are crazy. Like you do oh, see a lot of uh, like Giallo influence. And um, is that how you pronounce it, Giallo? Yeah, Thank yeah. you. I've only ever seen it written down. The, the way they say yellow. So oh, it's like okay. yellow. Giallo. Giallo. Okay, great. Uh, I'm sure that that's terrible, but <laughs> in in Canada we say Giallo. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that those are really cool. I, I I sense that Paul wasn't so into those sequences, so I didn't ask him more about them. But yeah, there's lots of weird dream sequences, and the murders are. As gross as you'd expect from Bob Clark. Well, real, real bloody and rough. And that bit with the sparks is stunning, where they're doing something oh, yeah. terrible with the red hot poker. And yes. it's, yeah. yeah. And I'll also say that there's a great, there is actually even more 
giallo touches in this film than even in Black Christmas because you've got a killer who's identified by having these creepily small pupils, mm-hmm. which is really cool. There's lots of eye shots, lots of hand shots. So fans of uh, fans of uh, slasher stuff and giallo stuff, there is actually a lot of that in here, uh, considering it's otherwise a Sherlock Holmes movie. I also super love his weaponized scarf totally <laughs> everyone like, does with the lead yeah, weight in it yeah. it's like junk. Yeah, um, yeah that part's awesome and for me I saw there was a bit in it because he has that whole chain fight at the end which yeah. is okay guys this has a cool. chain fight yeah, in yeah, it yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very cool but if you watch move for move it's the same fight from Die Hard 3 yeah. Where he's fighting the guy who's like the Energizer Bunny. You don't remember? I really no. like that. I really enjoyed that movie as a young adult. Um, but uh, now I haven't watched it in years and I'm not going to <laughs> just because I have fond memories of it. Um, but yeah, there's a whole a sequence of events fighting with that chain that is exactly the same as from, from hmm. I mean, how much chain fighting can you yeah, do? Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's only a few ways to do it safely, probably. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. But like, yeah, the same like wraparound pull. Like, it was interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was really cool. Um, and let's just talk for a second about how fucking good Genevieve Bougeau is in this sure. like holy crap I mean she was nominated for a genie based on like one scene she p- pulled the old uh, what's her face <laughs> oh from, <laughs> Net- Judy from Dench. Network yes <laughs> or, or, uh, oh yeah, yeah. and then her. what's her name because they did that too yeah uh, which is also brilliant I believe Judy Dench is the shortest ever maybe Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs yeah. but that one's just a quirk <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, but yeah it's just such a it's such an understated performance she's Stunning, and she's not wearing any makeup, and her hair's cut short. Um, and she's just so freaking magnetic. And not only that, she doesn't speak until partway through, and is more interesting than Christopher Plummer. Like your mm. eye is immediately drawn to her. She's just so incredible. And I mean, I know she had some really good gigs, yeah. but like, how did she not explode bigger into the North American yeah, genre? I don't know. Maybe she's more of a theater person, to be fair. Maybe, because I mean, Dead Ringers she's still is a big around. deal. She was almost Captain Janeway. Yes. <laughs> My favorite fact I will always bring up. Because <laughs> that's pretty great. Um, yeah, I think that's... Oh, and people were also very... Uh, when I was reading reviews, people were very uh, divided on Holmes's affability. A lot of people were like, mm. oh, no, he's not like that. And other people were like, he's the best and he's warm and cuddly. So I can see that. Um, I've got a couple great little facts for you if you would like sure. them. Uh, apparently, Bob Clark had to do research to see if the word fart was in existence in, oh. 1980, or in 1888. <laughs> uh, it was. <laughs> so now you know. Um, and then I like this very much. Uh, this At the end of the New York, the original New York Times review, it says, Murder by decree, which has been rated PG, parental guidance suggested, indicates that women who walk the streets are not always selling vegetables. The violence is handled with a fair amount of discretion. And I was like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you see somebody pretty much got it. I guess it's, they describe much more horrible things than you see in a way. Yeah. Like they describe somebody's heart like wrapped around their neck, so. And you don't see it. <laughs> nope, nope, but it is uh, it is talked about. Yeah. Um, and then just talking briefly, there was a, this such great uh, interview here with with him, and I'll post the link on the uh, on the Twitter as well to this interview with uh, Clint Exploitation because it's a great yeah. interview, and we'll probably touch on it as we do more Bob Clark stuff. Um, but yeah, he says. Uh, the relationship between the, between the two men appealed to me deeply. This is a passionate and caring Holmes. I wanted to get through his traditional reserve. I have aimed for humanizing all of the characters, and I think he succeeded. Like I said, I've never yeah. seen anything like this before in terms of how Holmes has been dealt with. For sure. It's definitely one of the better, like, it's been a while since we've had one that I've never heard of mm-hmm. that I liked so much. 
Yeah. And that ending is just so beautifully bitter, bittersweet. And can we see a whole movie about the psychic, <laughs> the Donald Sutherland psychic? Because <laughs> he's just so. And I love, I do love um, Christopher Plummer's whole like Cockney uh, chimney sweep trying yeah, to get inside. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved him that hacking was, and coughing. That was pretty good. And, yeah. I also like the Sherlock Holmes reaction to the psychic, which was like weird because it suited the character. But he like kind of believes him because he's just like, well, we can't know everything. Yeah, it's, like, right. <laughs> it's yeah. totally fine. Um, and I also really liked the the whole dock side thing where they're getting information from the guy underneath the dock. Mm, sure. I was like, that's a cool little way of doing it. I've never seen before. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sweet. Any other favorite moments, my friend? Nah, that's about it. Is I it think we, we covered a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. Go watch this movie, guys. Um, yeah. I can't recommend it enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you again to Paul Zaza. Thank you, Cam. Oh, no problem. Thank you, Becky. I'm not going to make you go get a moose head. I know how you're, I know you're trying to cut back in your drinking. Yes. So tell you what, uh, listeners, why don't y'all go get a moose head? Yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart, and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.